This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, after all the talk over the last five years, we're still not making enough progress in tackling money laundering in this country. So as a result, BC Attorney General David Eby continues to urge the federal government to take a page from the United States on this. In fact, as it turns out, he has been urging this for two years now. It doesn't sound like he's made a lot of progress. So let's find out what's been going on. Joining us now is Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global National. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So what have we learned about what David Eby has been asking for? Well, we've learned, that, as your listeners know, uh, there's been uh, years of testimony now at the Cullen Commission, and uh, I've found many thousands of pages of records, a very significant document. This was a confidential letter sent by David Eby to Minister Bill Blair in Ottawa in January 2019. This was around the time, uh, if your listeners remember, that this massive e-pirate money laundering case fell apart so essentially, uh, EB has asked Blair to put in a Canadian version of the RICO Act. That's the Anti-Racketeering Act, very famous in the United States for really hobbling the extremely powerful New York City mafia families that were running in the background, casinos and so much drug tra- trafficking, so much corruption in the United States. And it's really a hammer of a law. Uh, it, it allows police and the government to put a full court press on organized crime. Uh, if you've got an image in your mind, think of a basketball game where that you're all over the team. As soon as they've got the ball, you're giving them no space. You can uh, wiretap them very broadly and aggressively. And essentially, uh, EB argues, uh, uh, Peter German, the, the former Mountie that uh, BC asked to look into money laundering, told him that Canada's... Uh, current organized crime law is essentially powerless and singularly ineffective, as E.B. wrote it, against real organized crime. It's, a, it's just a tweezer of, the, of a tool, and the RICO law is a hammer, and it's been very effective in the United States against the most powerful crime networks there. Right. They've had that since 1970, right? Does that, that, when you say that, it seems like, boy, we are way far behind on this. Since 1970, and uh, it came in in a very high-level law from the Congress in the United States because they recognized that organized crime, specifically the mafias, were becoming so powerful and so intertwined with uh, the real economy in New York City and across the United States. Everyone has uh, seen some of these mafia movies about how these powerful gangsters uh, corrupt politicians and take a lot of money out of real estate uh, development, casinos, all areas of the economy. And yes, uh, there's a lot of reporting. I talked to police experts in, in my story that say... Uh, the FBI uh, really took down the mafia and also Asian-based gangs in New York City, especially where they're becoming so powerful. 
And uh, in the meantime, uh, Canadian investigators say that they have no ability to tackle the kingpins of organized crime. And in the meantime, these transnational crime networks that your listeners are now familiar with from my reporting yes. on the Cullen Commission, we're talking about the most violent Mexican and Colombian cartels in the world have turned BC into a base of drug trafficking operations using these uh, triad networks that are so good at money laundering have turned Vancouver into a money laundering hub for uh, the biggest uh, drug cartels in the world. So if David Eby has been asking for this for more than two years, almost three years, really, what has been the response from the public safety minister? There's been no response with regards to uh, legal reforms, especially on the RICO Act. Uh, I asked uh, Minister Eby. He said that Minister Blair gave him no response specifically on this request for a a very deep and powerful legal reform. Uh, The government, uh, in its turn, in Ottawa, has uh, ponied up tens of millions of dollars to to go towards the RCMP and Canada Border Services Agency. Ottawa uh, says that this money will help Canadian police tackle organized crime and uh, international money laundering. But look, on the other side of it, we know that uh, major cases have fallen apart in Vancouver, in Toronto. And uh, what's the common theme here? These are involving transnational drug cartels and international money laundering services using casinos and illegal casinos in Canada. Is this something that anybody else has been calling for here in Canada? Certainly, uh, if, uh, uh, I heard that a, a lot of people in, uh, in various police forces were, were very, um, you know, their eyebrows shot up with the story because this is something police have been asking for for a long time. It's not that Canadian investigators aren't some of the best in the world. They have some of the best intelligence in the world. But what they say is that when they try to work cases with our partners in Australia and the United States, Canadian police simply uh, can't participate at the same level or even a low level because Canadian police cannot get wiretaps approved. Uh, We heard uh, one investigator in uh, the Cullen Commission say that they tried for seven months to get phone taps on the Sinaloa cartel in Vancouver and failed. In the U.S., they could get these phone taps in days. So we're certainly hearing from the police. We're not hearing anything yet from uh, politicians except for Minister Eby through this letter that we obtained and reported on. All right, Sam, thanks so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, global national investigative journalist, to read his latest story. And boy, is it a good one. Just go online to globalnews.ca and you'll see the complete story there about Attorney General David Eby here in BC. is actually imploring the federal government to do something, put in place laws like they have in the United States, like the RICO statutes that would allow them to be more broad in tackling organized crime, international drug cartels and money laundering in this province. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. We are approaching the end of the first week of what has been a busy federal election campaign. So we thought, let's check in, see how things are going. Joining us now is Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. You know it's been busy because you've been traveling with the uh, Liberal campaign all over the place. Yeah, and and that's typically what happens in the first week of an election campaign. You'll see uh, the national campaigns, Liberals can, well, asterisks in this one. Typically, a campaign wants to sort of raise the flag in as many regions of the country as possible. So um, all the campaigns started, of course, in Ottawa. Some went to Montreal. Some went to Toronto. And um, 
uh, the conservative campaign, I'll just quickly say about that, is really focusing on virtual campaigning. The conservatives have built a TV set in downtown Ottawa, and they've been doing virtual town halls. I guess this is their method of safe campaigning, I suppose. Um, they did have a little day trip, essentially, to uh, Toronto, day trip to Quebec, but that's about it. The Trudeau campaign, on the other hand, and the Singh campaign definitely had the plane up in the air. They got their branded planes, the Trudeau plane, the Singh plane. And what I find remarkable about week one, you know, we're on essentially day six, is the Liberal campaign and the NDP campaign spent two full campaign days in where? British Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, BC is going to be so important to the electoral fortunes of all three parties. There's all kinds of three-way races, tight three-way races, the tightest race in the country in 2019, right there in Port Moody, Coquitlam, where Nelly Shin won the Conservative won by 153 votes over a new Democrat, and um, Trudeau was in that riding, Singh was in that riding. Uh, B.C. is uh, crucial and critical uh, to the Liberals' chances to regain their majority. They, they, it's, they need to win some seats in Quebec back, and they need to win some more seats in B.C., and they, they think they can. And Jagmeet Singh's, uh, you know, he's impressing a lot more Canadians. He's rising. He's the only one really showing much bump in the polls. And, um, of course, he is a B.C. candidate in Burnaby South, and so, you know, the NDP is is quite confident they're going to pick some seats up. So we were through B.C. this week, like, as I say, two full campaign days for two campaigns. And you're going to see more leaders uh, back in uh, back in Vancouver for sure. Right. And you've said that before, I've noticed. Your observation is that Jagmeet Singh really connects with people when he's campaigning. Yes. Uh, yes, he does. And um, <clears throat> he's a good campaigner. He's proven himself to be a good campaigner. And this time around... Uh, the NDP has some more resources, more money, uh, and they have, in my view, they've got some sort of old hands in their war room and running their campaign, and I think they'll run a smarter campaign. And so far, I think they have run a smart campaign. I don't think anybody's had necessarily a bad week or an exceptionally good week, um, and uh, that tends to favor incumbents when that sort of thing happens. Um, so I think Singh, Singh has done so far very well. In addition to being in Vancouver, he was in Edmonton yesterday. Yes, uh, that's where the New Democrats think there's a seat to be had for them uh, in downtown Edmonton. They hold one seat right now. They think they can pick up another. Uh, Trudeau was in, yes, Calgary, believe it or not. And liberals think there are seats in Calgary. They, really? They've got their eye on three. Oh, absolutely. They've got their eye on three in Calgary and a couple in Edmonton. The reason here is not so much that all of a sudden Albertans have fallen in love with Alberta, but they've never fallen in love with Aaron O'Toole compared to Andrew Scheer. Quick little data point. In 2019, Andrew Scheer got 80%, 80% of the popular vote in Alberta. Aaron O'Toole just this week cracked the 50% mark. He's been polling at 40, 40 to 50. So 80 for Sheer, 40 to 50 for O'Toole. So where are those voters going? They're largely in urban or suburban Calgary and Edmonton. They're looking at the NDP. They're looking at Justin Trudeau. Is that also a reflection of the current unpopularity of Jason Kenney in that province? Yes. In fact, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny. The, the incumbent New Democrat MP in Edmonton, her name's Heather McPherson. She's in downtown Edmonton. She's actually campaigning against Jason Kenney, and why not? Because Kenney is very unpopular in Alberta. The opposition in Alberta is a new Democrat, Rachel Notley. And so, um, sure, in fact, in, in uh, Trudeau held what I would call the first rally I saw. It was a you know, COVID-safe rally, social distance, the in invite only, and, and so on. Relatively small crowd for a Trudeau rally. And at that rally, Trudeau took aim at Kenney. And uh, you may remember in 2019, you saw Trudeau essentially campaign against Doug Ford. That was mm -hmm. the evil provincial premier. So far, we, 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 there's been reports, actually, that the Ford and 
Trudeau campaign have called a truce this time around. You may not see Trudeau uh, knock forward so much, but um, absolutely Trudeau came right at Jason Kenney last night and uh, was hammering him for his policies and and in the same breath then saying that's why you need to send liberals to Ottawa. Hmm. All right. So what do we look ahead to next week then, David? Where are you going to be? Uh, well, I'm going to be. I'm going to go hang out with the Jagmeet Singh campaign. So uh, they're not going to take off and on Sunday. And the thing about being a campaign reporter is you pack your bag and you never know where you're going. Uh, <laughs> you don't find out really until the night before. Uh, I'm calling you from Winnipeg today. Um, I know I'm going to. That's where the Trudeau campaign event will be today in Winnipeg. And then we hop in the plane and fly west to Regina, and then we're home for the weekend. So I'm looking forward to seeing the Singh campaign. As I say, I think it's the one to watch, not because I think Singh's going to be the prime minister, but, you know, the whole reason we're having this is because Trudeau wants a majority. He's got a minority, of course. And I really think that that Singh and the Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-François Blanchet, they're the ones in a position to block Trudeau's ambitions for a majority. Um, I'm not sure the Conservatives are in that position. I think the Conservatives will win, you know, sort of their 90 to 100 seats, which would be a little less. But, you know, I'm not sure that they are really in a place that they can... It'll be, um, I think it'll be a tremendous accomplishment, one for the ages, if O'Toole can win government. But absolutely, it's quite within the realm of possibility for Singh and Blanchet to block Trudeau's majority. Oh, so interesting. All right, David, thank you. Best of luck. Okay, thanks, Jimmy. Cheers. David Aiken, our Global News National Chief Political Correspondent. For more on the campaign trail, just check out globalnews.ca. Did you hear that Canada's largest city, Toronto, announced this week that all municipal employees must be fully vaccinated by October the 30th? And they are required to tell their employer about their vaccination status by September the 13th. It's a lot of people, and it does seem to be indicative of the way things are going. This morning, RBC, huge bank here in Canada, announced the same thing, that all employees, whether in Canada or the United States, are going to have to be vaccinated. So could other cities and other municipalities, particularly here in BC, follow suit with what Toronto is doing? Are there legal ramifications for that? Joining us now is Ari Goldkind, who's a criminal lawyer, political commentator and legal expert. Ari, thanks for joining us this morning. Great to, great to be on with you. Good morning. What did you think when you heard that Toronto is mandating this? Is this something that we could do here in BC? Yeah, I mean, look, anybody can do anything until they're forced to stop. That's why this conversation is so bizarre to me because, you know, people assume that, you know, this can't be done or you're going to fight the power. Well, until somebody fights the power, we know who has the power and doesn't. Now, there are minor differences between the way my city's council is set up with all the power sort of in the city and the mayor and the council versus, you know, certain provinces uh, and cities where the province sort of has the final say. But absolutely, you're seeing, as you just mentioned in the intro, all sorts of snowball effects of these sort of, quote, show your papers, uh, which is what I call them, uh, end quote, uh, rules and requirements. Uh, We can talk about the legalities. What if you don't want to get it? What are employers likely going to do? But when when I hear people pontificating on this with such a degree of certainty, here's the bottom line. Until, until you have a judge, depending on what level of court, enter into the fray and you know politics enters into this and you cannot take the politics out of this. Mm-hmm. you may have one judge in one province in one city say one thing you may have another judge in another province in another city say another thing 
So all of this is very, very, very much in the air. But if you're the ordinary average person right now, you have no power. Hiring a lawyer can be very expensive. But, you know, everybody who's so certain that this is legal and this isn't legal and this is ethical, you know, until this stuff is sussed out over the next couple of years, right now, governments and companies can do anything they want to do. Right. And that's a key here, too, right, with the companies in particular. I mean, BC health officials have said that they believe that companies can say you're not allowed to work here unless you're vaccinated. I think that gives a pretty like a pretty lot of legal leeway there. That's right. And, you know, we get into questions just for people to wonder how this shakes out. You know, the most common ways that people might think they have a ticket out of getting jabbed is coming up with a religious exemption, which I think, quite frankly, will be viewed as weak. I think what is stronger is if you have a bona fide note, bona fide note from a medical doctor. I don't mean your, no offense, naturopath or, you know, um, a PhD student, but an actual doctor saying you have antibody levels that suggest this, or you have a medical condition that suggests the virus may be uh, not in your best interest. I can see an employer having to make an accommodation there. Then you get into questions to me about rapid testing. Well, if somebody doesn't want to take the vaccine, what is the testing regime to prove that they do not bring the vaccine into a workplace? Because the bottom line is that an employer does have a duty, does have a duty to keep other employees safe. Right. And if they're a forward front facing business, you know, a, a, t, um, a transit uh, commission, uh, you have the feds doing it with planes you know, there are obligations to keep customers and fellow employees safe. Now, is that, is that as a legal argument, though, Ari, though? Like, can can you make that legal argument and say our greater good outweighs the individual here? 100%. And that's what they will be making. And we live in a political climate now where if you have vaccine concerns or are worried about side effects or are worried about how fast this is being pushed through or the FDA hasn't approved it and is pushing their own timeline through, you're viewed as an anti-vaxxer, even though you may not be, and you may have 100 vaccines in you in the last 30 years. So you will immediately be looked at as a bit of a quack or a charlatan or charlatan. That concerns me as a lawyer because there are bona fide arguments here and science. Here's where the issue becomes more interesting. The science of this certainly comes up to play. What kind of ordinary average litigant can afford to marshal the science and then you're asking a judge who has no particular scientific or mathematic background to opine on something simi that in my view is completely political with a medical or scientific component but at the end of the day the bottom line is reasonable accommodation may be one thing you may be able to say to your employer look i'll work from home instead of being fired you also have to look at what's the, di- the difference between a unionized workplace where there are what's called collective agreements and non-unionized. But if you gave me a bottom line in this country and said, who is going to ultimately win this, an employer or a lowly employee that says, I'm not comfortable getting vaccinated, nor, by the way, Simi, we talk as if it's today, August 20th. What is the attitude of Canadians going to be six months from now, one year from now, 18 months from now, where every six months you're going to be told the vaccine's wearing off, you've got to get another one. We don't seem to be having that conversation at all either. 
Yeah, let me ask you as well, is time on the side of employers here too? Because you know what, you could make these legal arguments, but to have the, those kinds of arguments wind their way through the courts already takes a long time. It takes a long time and it's very expensive. And as I said right now, the public, you know, cer- certainly from a media point of view, if you even say, look, I'm hesitant to get the vaccine, you get called some pejorative word. That, to me, is very troubling. You're also dealing with judges that are very attuned to the politics. You also have to look at, you know, where are judges appointed by? People act as if, you know, judges descend from the mountaintops. They're human beings. They bring their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own prejudices into it. And why is that important, Simi? Because this is unprecedented. I've heard people compare this to law where people take the flu shot or don't. This is unprecedented. This is literally now a country where you are being told by certain levels of government that you should not be able to go into a grocery store without demonstrating that you're vaccinated. We're into serious territory here. It's unprecedented. But the bottom line is it will not be easy for somebody to challenge this unless Mm -hmm. there are lawyers that are willing to take significant pay cuts. And even if they win, what is the employer going to have to pay somebody who wins? Some back pay, some severance. So So the bottom line is, Simi, the employers, the government of Canada have all the power. And by the way, many people listening to us today might say, that's fantastic. The government Absolutely. should have the power. I, yeah. I, I, I'm somebody who says, hold on a moment. Let's see what's going on here. Let's, let's settle down. Let's look at the science. Let's talk the long term. But the truth is, nobody should be unsafe in their workplace. And if there's a way to accommodate somebody, right. great. But if it's with a silly doctor's note or a silly religious exemption that isn't bona fide, yeah. I don't like those either. Ari, thank you so much for your time this morning. Pleasure, Simi. Appreciate that. Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, political commentator, and legal expert talking about the issue of workplaces, particularly like municipalities and cities, mandating vaccines. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lots of people all over BC still waiting for guidance on the upcoming school year. We're not just talking K-12 to either. We're talking post-secondary institutions all over this province need to know what can they do? What can they regulate? What kind of mandates can they put in place? They need guidance on this. Now, we understand it's coming next week, but gosh, classes start the week after that, right? And the Delta variant is causing a lot of concern out there. So joining us now is George Hoberg, Professor and Grad Director at UBC's School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. How does UBC faculty feel about this right now? Before I start, I I just want to clarify that I'm speaking as an individual faculty member and not on behalf of any program or larger organization. Right. But a lot of people, uh, faculty, staff and students are actually quite anxious about the upcoming year. The current plan uh, for 11 days from now, when we get back onto campus, is that things are supposed to be back to normal. And with the fourth wave raging, it doesn't really feel like that makes sense. 
Have you, has there been any communication to members of the faculty, like even as an individual faculty member about what's happening, what's going on? Uh, the last thing that we have heard is, is what I just said, that, that we're following the provincial guidelines that anticipate stage four beginning uh, the day after Labor Day and that um, we'll be back to normal on campus. Does that seem uh, likely to you? Uh, it's, it's quite hard to believe. Um, and it, it's, uh, I'm a, the director of a program and we're trying to figure out how to run an orientation the week before, uh, how to set up classes. It's actually, we, we really do hope we can have some in-person education, but if, if there's a decision to go back online, we know how to do that. What's much more complicated from a planning perspective is if we need to do physical distancing, uh, because uh, we have all these large classes across the university uh, that just, the classrooms just don't provide for that. In your opinion, is it possible to do physical distancing this late in the game? Uh, n- not in 11 days, no. Uh, it, the, 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 the time window required for rescheduling classrooms is, uh, is much, much longer than that. How difficult has this been for you as an, an instructor, as a professor, George, just juggling last year and, and this year, and you're thinking, trying to connect with your students? It must be so challenging. Uh, it's challenging in terms of, uh, you know, individual faculty members' own uh, concerns. It's, it, we're, I think many people are more concerned about uh, students. And there's a lot of concern about uh, faculty members and staff and some students as well uh, who have unvaccinated kids at home. I mean, the, we, we now know that even if you're double vaccinated, you can still carry uh, the virus and, and transmit it to others. And the consequences for uh, young families are very concerning. Are there, is there anything in place for that? Like in terms of if you think, I, I don't feel safe coming to work to teach my class because of that. Uh, are there accommodations being made for staff? We haven't heard about that either. That's quite surprising, right? That's something that I really need to know. Can my faculty members in my unit choose not to come uh, to campus and not teach in person if they don't feel safe? Can a student choose not to come if they don't feel safe? We know that if people have symptoms, they're not supposed to come. But the question of what, whether or not people don't feel safe in, in an environment where they're uncertain whether people are vaccinated and some people aren't wearing masks. Uh, we just don't know what the norms and rules are about that. That's a very sensitive issue. Sensitive? It sounds stressful. <laughs> yes, it is. So uh, next week, what do you expect to hear? What do you hope to hear? Is, is that what we're learning now that the news is coming next week? Well, I had been hoping that it would be today. I was it's hoping it was going to be today, too, because that's what the health <laughs> minister told us last week when he was on our show. And now we're hearing it's going to be next week. Yeah, and that's very surprising because even the universities in, in Alberta, not known for its progressive policies, have uh, now moved ahead of British Columbia universities. So, um, yeah, we're really hoping uh, to get a lot more clarity next week when, or, or as soon as possible when the announcements are made. But well, from what you said, next week is kind of when you were supposed to be holding some training sessions to getting everybody ready, right? Orientation. Yeah, next uh, Thursday, we're, having an in-person, we're, we're scheduled to have an in-person orientation. What is your preference for now, George? Like, what would you like to see ideally in a setup for you where you would feel safe? Well, I would like to have uh, people that are actually in person in campus all vaccinated and preferably masked as well. I mean, that's what we've been asking for for months now. Uh, It's implausible that that can be in place uh, on um, September 7th when we start uh, school simply because you know, people can't get vaccinated that quickly and they need a second dose as well, which people have to wait 28 days for. Uh, given that, I do think we need to step back a bit from the, you know, back to business as normal uh, starting September 7th. Are you 
able to offer that to your students if they want it? Like, is any any professor or instructor able to say, I'm going to be flexible? Uh, at present, our understanding is, and again, there hasn't been a lot of direct guidance on this, is that we have to follow the rules that are uh, delivered by the province. And, and we have not gotten an update on that since early July. Oh, my goodness. All right, you're going to have a busy week. Listen, George, thank you for talking to us about it this week right now. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's George Hoberg, professor, grad director at UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Uh, they need direction. They need some assistance, as you can hear. Uh, school doesn't just start on September 7th, especially at post-secondary institutions. They've got orientation. It's supposed to be next week. They're still waiting for guidance. BC has not yet provided it. Other provinces have done that for their post-secondary institutions. We are still waiting. And as you heard, George speaking for himself as an as a professor, they need to know how they can deal with their students, how they can deal with other faculty. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Now, yes, when we had Adrian Dix on the show a week ago, he said it was coming this week. It now sounds like uh, the indications we've had, it'll be early next week. There's going to be, I think, multiple uh, press conferences covering a number of different subjects, not just the education system, but still sooner rather than later on this, right? Like there's a lot of people whose livelihoods and school and all of that depend on this information. So again, if you want to weigh in with your thoughts, send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Most of us haven't really traveled a whole lot in the last year and a half, right? Some people have, but I think for most of us, we're waiting. We want it to be safe. We don't want to have to worry about all this other stuff. Uh, but with things going the way they are, vaccination rates that were climbing, I think a lot of us started to think about where can we go? What can we do? Well, there's a new BCAA survey out about this, and it turns out a lot of people are ready to take that plunge and start planning a trip. Joining us now is Namita Kearns, who's a director at BCAA. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So how many people are planning a trip, do you think, right now, according to your survey? Yeah, according to our survey, uh, 58% of British Columbians are saying they feel ready to travel either this year or next year. I think people are excited uh, to get back to travel again, but they also recognize that travel will be different, uh, but they're willing to take the precautions to get back to it. So 58%, how did that break down with age or was there any breakdown? Yeah, we did see that, um, you know, for people that are 55 plus, uh, they're a little bit more eager to travel, um, probably representing some of our snowbirds, that 21% of them are confident about traveling this year, um, you know, likely getting back to their winter destinations. Okay, so clearly the snowbirds are getting ready to go. That's right. What about younger people? Yeah, we did see, you know, for, for younger people, um, they're maybe a little bit more cautious and probably looking to travel more later in the second half of next year. Um, but overall, um, encouraging to see that uh, people are starting to plan uh, to take those trips. Now, did that surprise you that you've got such a large number of 18 to 34 year olds, younger people who are saying, I'm going to put this off for another year? Yeah, you know, I mean, everyone's situation is different. Um, and uh, I think the, the most important thing that people can do is, you know, just uh, monitor the situation and, uh, you know, just make sure they plan carefully when they decide to take their trip. Right, because it sounds like from your survey, people are doing that too. They're definitely doing some planning and research. Exactly. Yeah, we were, you know, even though about, I think, 80% of people, um, you know, they are worried about COVID-19 and, and what that might mean for their trip. 
but 86% of them are saying that they're going to plan and prepare uh, to make sure that uh, they can keep themselves and their families, you know, healthy and protected while they're traveling. Right. So I know BCAA is definitely big in the travel business. Like, what have you noticed about travel patterns? Are people booking more trips? Yeah, we actually, the reason we did this survey is we did, we have been seeing an uptick in our travel insurance sales over the last couple of months. Um, And so we were curious to see, you know, how are people feeling about travel? Um, And uh, they are starting to book uh, their trips and and therefore they're, they're buying travel insurance as well. Okay, so things are definitely picking up. So when you say people are buying travel insurance, Mita, would you say more people are buying travel insurance now than before the pandemic? You know, that's hard to say. Our study did show that 87% of people said they will protect their trip by buying travel insurance. Um, Obviously, our sales have been quiet over the pandemic, uh, but over the last couple of months, we've seen an increase. And our survey shows that uh, people are looking to... uh, ensure they have travel insurance when they when they do take their trip. I feel like that's going to be something that stays with us post-pandemic, right? Because people now realize that, yeah, the worst can definitely happen and you should protect your trip. Absolutely. So what are the top destinations right now? What, what kind of areas are you seeing interest in? Yeah, I don't, our study didn't go into that, that depth. Um, so it, it's definitely international travel. Um, and I think what, you know, we're understanding is that people are, as they prepare for their trips, they are, you know, they're going to look into their, um, you know, travel insurance options, but they're also going to look at, you know, what's the situation at their destination of choice. So, you know, what are the local case counts or are there any rules or restrictions they need to be aware of? Um, so there's no surprises when they get to their destination. Um, so we didn't, we didn't get into exactly where, but definitely international travel is of interest. Right. But it doesn't sound like, so people are definitely still doing it. They're just doing a lot more homework. Exactly. You know, they're, they're excited to get back to their trips, but they, they know things are different and they're, they're planning accordingly. All right. Well, listen, Namita, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Namita Kearns, director of BCAA. They just did a survey of British Columbians to talk about travel. 58% of you say you are ready to take the plunge either late this year or next. And you know what? Snowbird's definitely ready to head out. 55 plus 25, 21% of them say they will travel this year. They're confident of that. But the younger generation, between 18 to 34, about a quarter of them, 26%, say the soonest they're thinking about traveling is late 2022. So what about you? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you ready to start planning that trip? I think so, so a lot of us, I'm one of those people, you need something to look forward to. So where will it be? Where will you go? And what timeline are you thinking? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. And on that note, speaking of traveling, particularly to the United States, uh, we know that we opened our border to fully vaccinated Americans, right? What was that, 10 days or so ago, 10, 11 days ago, waiting for the Americans to reciprocate. It's not going to happen this month, that's for sure. They just announced this morning that the American border will remain closed to Canada and Mexico until at least September the 21st. So they gave it another 30 days. It is that time of year. I mean, sure, we're thinking about back to school, end of summer, but on the plus side, and let's face it, we need a plus side right now. The PE gets underway tomorrow with some COVID-19 restrictions, I might add. But let's get all the details. Lots to talk about with Shelly Frost, PE president and CEO. Good morning, Shelly. 
Good morning, Sumi. Thanks for having me. This must have felt like just an incredibly long journey to get to this point. (laughs) It was. It was a 17-month journey for all of us, you know, in BC and around the world. And we're just glad to be starting to come out the other side of it. It was exciting to see the Lions play last night. It's great to see that the Whitecaps have a game this weekend. And we couldn't be happier to throw open our doors this weekend to the fair. What is it going to look like? Yeah, so, you know, it's going to look a little different. Um, it's not going to be as big as a, new, as a usual fair. We, uh, you know, we had to pick a scenario that we felt was going to be the most safe and the easiest to control. And so it's probably going to be about, uh, you know, a third the size of a normal fair. But um, you're going to have everything is basically outdoors. So you're going to have lots of space to physically distance and feel like you are in, you know, a safe, controlled environment. But we're still going to bring back as many of your favorites as we possibly can. So we're not going to use a lot of the indoor buildings. um, But we are, you know, we're going to have super dogs outside in the amphitheater. And we're still going to have a lot of the agricultural programming in the livestock building. You're still going to be able to get your food favorites. And you're going to have the ability to see some of your favorites, some of the favorite shops that you might have uh, have experienced. We're still going to have shows like, you know, the logger show and some atmospheric entertainment. Um, So we just, we want to give people kind of a sense of all the things that they've been missing and at the same time, make sure we do that in a really safe way. Right. And we know that you have to buy your tickets online ahead of time, right? Because you're controlling capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Every day has a capacity. So we are asking everybody to go to peony.ca, buy their tickets in advance, and you need to buy them for a date specific ticket. Okay, so that's that's a bit different. A lot of people are used to probably just walking up and buying at the yeah, gate. Indeed. But you know, Playland was the same and you used to just be able to walk up and go to Playland every time or any any day of the you know, any day. And we have been um with Playland doing date specific tickets as well. People have really caught on to that. So I'm hoping that they will also catch on to it for the fair. Is that something that you can foresee keeping in the future? But Potentially, for sure. <laughs> it certainly makes a lot of things easier. Uh, it makes a lot of things easier for us in terms of staffing and knowing, you know, how many people are potentially coming. Um, but for this year in particular, it's just so important that we make sure that we control the capacity. And for guests that are feeling like they're ready to venture out, and we know that there will be some that won't, um, but for guests that are ready to venture out, we want to make sure that their first experiences are really positive ones. They feel like they've got lots of space and they're not, you know, jammed in arm to arm with uh, uh, with guests around them. Right. One of the great things about the peony, though, Shelley, is the history, right, that goes along yeah, with it. Indeed. And I was so excited to hear that the Challenger relief map is coming back. <laughs> so tell for people yeah. who don't know, tell us about the Challenger map. Yeah, so the Challenger map was this iconic exhibit that we had at the fair. Uh, it was at the Peony for about uh, 25, 30 years. And it was built by um, a, a gentleman by the last name Challenger. And he built it over the series of like about five years. And it was built, it's a, it's a relief map that's t- topographic topographically correct and it uh it shows the entire province it's about 80 feet by 80 feet and so you know for years and decades really we had school groups come through and it was really one of the highlights of the fair it was one of the things that it's still one of the things that people ask us the most about when we had some of the buildings on the site come down uh the the map had to go into storage and it's been being held by air canada out at the airport for you know 25 years now so we've been in discussions through a number of people who have really been trying to drive this forward. Uh, Councillor Lisa Dominato, Councillor Peter, Peter Fry, um, a number of group of, a group of people who have been really interested in finding it a home. And the Challenger family, uh, we've been in discussions with about bringing it home permanently back to the PE. We got to say it out loud last year. We are finding it its permanent home. We're bringing it back out. We're going to restore it and bring it back to its grandeur. And I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity with some technology overlay.
place to tell the stories about, you know, our natural resources, our, you know, Indigenous stories, um, just really be able to tell some great stories about BC on that map. Oh, I have so many fond memories of that was always a highlight for me when I was a little kid coming to the PE. and oh, so, We're so glad to bring it back. So where is it going to be? Where can we find it on the grounds? Yeah, so right now, just a portion of it is on the grounds. We've got about eight pieces of it, and it's in the livestock building on display uh, for people to come and see. You're going to be able to see some of the restored pieces as well as some a piece that is not restored. Uh, and right now, we're just doing a feasibility study in terms of looking at where its best location on the site is going to be. Okay, but we can look forward to it permanently coming back. You can. I love that. And when you look at it, isn't it amazing when you look at it, Shelley, where you think, how did one person make this? Know, like, this is phenomenal. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. But he just had such a passion for the province. And that's really shown in, you know, when we talked to his grandson, uh, Bill Challenger, who we deal with now. And, you know, their entire family, it's just so special to their family. And they all remember working on it as kids. And um, he just, he was so passionate about forestry and he was passionate about BC and, you know, having people understand how magnificent the province was. Um, it's really, really just an amazing classic. Oh, I love that. Okay. And also, are there fireworks, by the way? Because I know there have been some reports about this. Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking, Simi. Um, so we do have uh, a show that we do at the end of the night, which we call Electric Fire. It's one of the most popular shows that we've done in a decade. We do not do fireworks, and that's really important to know. It's a dance show that features about 24 dancers, but it is enhanced with what what's called pyrotechnic. And anything that we do on site um, is rated for close proximity special effects that could be used indoors. So we have a special permit to be able to do that show, and a permit is different than an exemption. An exemption, you know, would mean that we could do something that's outside the guidelines of, of what other people could do. That's not the case. A permit just means that the fire department has been in. They've taken a look at what we do, the products that we use, how we use them, when we use them, um, and they've issued their approval that everything that we're doing is safe. They were on site last night during the rehearsal of the show, but the p e grounds have been really quiet for, you know, two years. And so we did have a couple of neighbors that saw fire um, or, you know, what appeared to be fire on the site. And uh, we're very concerned that potentially something, you know, negative was going on. And, of course, we're right. so conscious as well about, you know, everything that's going on in the province with our forest fires. So what we're doing on site is permitted and it's very carefully controlled and classified as something that you could do indoors as um, a close proximity special effect. Nothing that is any danger. Okay, good to know. Good to know. But you did mention the weather. And so I'm sorry, Shelley, I will say I have been making this joke for a week now when I look at the weather <laughs> forecast because I thought, oh, things are cooling down. The rain is moving uh, yeah. Is the peony starting? Oh, it must be. <laughs> oh, Simi, if I had a dime for every time we, every time we heard that story. <laughs> I, I know I looked at it too and I thought I saw some raindrops on Sunday and I'm like, yep, <laughs> just enough to stress right. us out. But, but it also makes it more use it. comfortable for people to come to the peony. It does. And you know what? Our province needs it. So um, we, we're going to be there, rain, shine, or anything, and we're going to take whatever we can get. We're happy to see, you know, a little bit of rain coming down for um, all the firefighters and stuff that are out in the province. And uh, we're just glad to have the doors open, and we're thrilled to be able to welcome people back. Well, that's good to hear. Shelley, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Sydney. Good you luck. There. Yep. Well, you'll see you there. That's Shelly Frost, p and president and CEO. The p and gets underway tomorrow. Check out their website, though. You have to buy those tickets in advance. And yes, I know everybody's been making the jokes about the weather turning and time for the p and to start. Hey, it's a good thing that the weather is cooling down. We're getting some precipitation. The province needs it. They know that. And we are all used to going to the p and when it rains, right? Shouldn't be a big deal. Get out there and support the p and if you can. There's all sorts of great reasons to do that this year.